0: 2006, September 26th, today is Lecture 5, Mapping Earth and Sky, which will begin in just a moment. Let's go. So yesterday, we established the shape of the Earth as a sphere, and we talked about ways in which its size was measured. And I've taken a historical approach to this. I could simply stand up and say, the Earth is a sphere, and it's this big. And you would have two essential facts, and you would have no idea where those facts came from, or why why those facts are important. By taking this historical approach, I got a very particular pedagogical idea in mind. It's often as important to know where our ideas came from as it is to know those ideas itself, because they illustrate the process by which we discover things about the world. And it isn't always easy. As we've seen, people can get the numbers wrong by a whole bunch, and sometimes those wrong numbers have unusual consequences later down the line. The wrong number of Claudius Ptolemy for the size of the earth convinced Christopher Columbus he could sail to Japan by sailing simply west from Spain. Of course, that encouraged him to do so, and he discovered what we refer to as the New World, or at least came across the North American and South American continents, or what became that. Of course, there were people living here who wondered what the hell he was discovering, but people in Europe didn't know about it at all. It didn't even show up on the maps. It didn't show up in a lot of places, and that's an interesting consequence of that. Columbus actually used the Eratosthenes measurement for the size of the Earth. The distance between Spain and Japan would have been so dauntingly large, he probably never would have tried, which, well, maybe the Aztec and Maya would have probably found that to be a good thing, but history is often different. Having now established the shape of the Earth and its size, we want to ask the question of how we fix locations upon the Earth and, similarly, how we fix locations upon the sky. And so today's lecture is called Mapping the Earth and Sky. We're going to use this lecture as a way to introduce a couple of ideas we're going to need later on as we begin to talk about motions in the heaven. The first is to reintroduce the idea of angular units, measurements of angles, degrees, minutes, and seconds of arcs. Arcs are nothing more than a small section of a circle. So again, this picture of a geometric circle comes into play. It's a very important geometric construct used in descriptive astronomy. We're going to start by talking about how you fix a system of coordinates, how I say where I am in a particular place on the location of the Earth, and of course I'll introduce to you or reintroduce to you the idea of the longitude and latitude system. You all know what it is, but maybe you don't know a lot of the stuff about it, so it's interesting sometimes to take a look at where that system came from and how it's defined. We'll then take the terrestrial coordinate system and develop an analogous coordinate system on the sky, which we'll call the celestial sphere, We'll define celestial poles and equators, which are related to the poles and equator of the spherical Earth. And we'll define something called the declination, which is actually a celestial latitude. We're not going to define celestial longitude here because it's a much more complicated construct that requires we know something about time and motion, which we don't know yet. And finally, talk about how we now put these two pieces together. What I see in the sky depends upon where I am standing on the Earth and when and what part of the sky I am looking at at any given instant. And the two ideas of the terrestrial and celestial systems come together in what the sky looks to me here, looking up at a particular time. And we'll talk about the local horizon and zenith and the local sky. That sets the stage now for beginning to talk about the motions in the heavens over the next week. So today we're talking about how we now fix our place on the earth and how we define places in the sky. Geography is a study of the earth, more likely it's not so much a study of the physical earth, that would be geology, but geography is a study of the surface of the earth and people's relationship to it. And geography really can be boiled down to a single set of questions. My friends who are geographers might disagree with this, but if you look at what they do, this is in fact what they spend their time doing. They answer three basic types of questions. Where am I right now? Where is someplace else? And how do I get there from here? That's one of the main areas of physical geography. Now, ancient maps, if we look at the oldest maps in existence, what we find is that they were very practical tools made mostly for local consumption. They gave distances and directions to a specific place from another specific place. So for example, there's these wonderful maps that show Rome in the center of the map. And then if you want to go from Rome to Londinium, it said, oh, well, you just go that way, thus and so many Roman miles. Or you want to get down to Syria, you go that other way, thus not so many different Roman miles. That's pretty good. In fact, you can approximate the earth as a flat earth and simply point that way, that away and that far, and you get a pretty good description of where that place is. Of course, nobody walked in a straight line from Rome to Londinium, not the least of which is, in fact, you couldn't walk when you crossed the English Channel. But You simply travel on a much more general path. So these maps were only partially useful in, in a real practical sense for geography. And they were especially not very useful when the distances become large that the fact of the Earth being a sphere begins to come into play. It's one thing to lay out a flat map of Franklin County or even a flat map of the state of Ohio and say, yeah, to get to Troy, Ohio, you go, let's see, we're north, south east-west, go west about 100 kilometers, and you'll be smacked down in the middle of Troy, Ohio. But what if instead I wanted to go to Shanghai, China? Then going in a straight line is not very useful, and the fact that the Earth is a sphere begins to come into play. This is the oldest map we know of. It's the oldest thing that's recognizable as a map that we found, and it only comes from 600 B.C. Maps are certainly older, but this 600 B.C. map from a place called Seppur, this is a Babylonian cuneiform tablet, shows the oldest existing map of the entire Earth. And even it is kind of a, almost a symbolic representation of the Earth. We see a form which is very familiar here, a world-girdling ocean These two crossing bits here, which are thought by some to be the Mediterranean and a couple of the major rivers of Mesopotamia. And then the cuneiform writing gives the names of locations, Babylon or Sippur and other places like that. And the text up here actually describes the use of this. We have only a fragment. We know people began to, as they saw the world in larger terms, begin to want to map out the earth and ask questions about where you are in it and show the relationship of you and perhaps even the places you ruled. As empires grew, So did the need for maps. Now, to measure on a surface on the ground, all I have to do is say, go in a particular direction, a particular distance. A nice, flat, rectilinear system works fine. But once I go to the surface of a sphere, I have to leave behind distances and directions a bit, and I have to talk now, more sensibly, about angles. Because remember, a sphere is that surface which is formed equidistant from a single point. And as I move along that sphere, I have to stay from that center an equal distance. I ultimately end up measuring angles of arc on the surface of the sphere. So I have to talk about angular measure to really sensibly come up with a coordinate system on a sphere. Now let's take the simplest way of talking about angular measure. Our tradition is to take a complete circle and break it into 360 divisions called degrees. So a single circle consists of 360 degrees. The Babylonians, showing that previous map is one of the reasons why I picked it, started this convention of 360 degrees to a circle. And the reasons for it are are manifold. Number one is 360 is very close to 365, the number of days in a solar year, in round numbers. So, clearly the Babylonians picked 360 because it was very close to the whole notion of of a celestial year. And We're going to see this appearing again. Our angular system has a remembrance buried within it of its astronomical origins. The other reason for picking 360 is that the Babylonians were really keen on numbers but they hated fractions. They didn't have decimal system per se and so they developed a base 60 kind of system and they really favored numbers that had these nice mathematical properties that let you subdivide them without recourse to fractions. And 360 the coincidence with the number of days in the year must have just really, just they really love that. Because 360 is a cool number. 360 is divisible by 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 8, 7, 10, 12, 15, 18, 20, 24, 30, 36, 40, 45, 60, 72, 90, 120, and 180 without ever having to resort to fractions. So it's a great number for figuring if you don't know how to deal with fractions. And this coincidence, of course, just wow, this must be some cosmically significant number. And so, in fact, numbers that are multiples of 60 appear over and over again in Babylonian mathematics. And we're going to see them still buried inside of our language and conventions for measuring angles and later for measuring time. Now, the way you build the system of degrees in the Babylonian system is by simple geometric construction. You start by using a compass and you draw a circle you then quarter that circle into 90 degrees and then begin to progressively subdivide each of those segments of a circle until you finally get down to the point that you get down to the lowest level so you've made 360 subdivisions of the circle. Those 360 subdivisions define one degree of arc. Now I'm going to be very explicit here by talking about degree of arc because we've also used the word degree for degree of temperature and things like that. Although when I'm obviously talking about angular units, I'll drop the extra qualifier. This drawing up here shows you how small a degree of arc is. This is actually a circle which, if you could imagine in your head, extending it well past the ceiling, well into the floor, this is one degree of that section. It's a little tiny unit on the full circle. So we take a circle, subdivide it into 360, and again, our choice of 360 is a near coincidence with the length of the year and days, and this wonderful numerical property of 360 being so divisible Without resort to fractions. So that gives us our basic angular unit, the degree. The problem is, degrees get to be kind of coarse after a while. For talking about big positions, multi- measuring things in round numbers of degrees is pretty good. But if you really start getting to higher and higher precision, you need to find yourself subdividing degre- the degree into smaller units. This division was done to some degree by the Babylonians, but the system was really put together in a formal way in the second century AD by Claudius Ptolemy, the father of modern geography. So we saw Ptolemy yesterday. Here's where Ptolemy makes a very profound contribution to the language as well as to the practice of measuring angles. The first thing you wanna do is you want to subdivide the degree into some subdegree degree units. And the subdegree degree unit we pick, the 1st subdegree sub-degree unit is called the minute of arc. We take a degree and we divide it up into 60 parts, 60 minutes of arc per degree. Why is it called a minute? Well, a lot of people today would say, well, there's 60 minutes in an hour and 60 seconds in a minute. And so obviously, this is a reflection of measurement of time. That's backwards. We measured angles before we learned how to measure time. And so, in fact, the word minute comes from the fact, in Latin, what you would call the division of the degree is the pars minuta prima, the first little part, minuta, minute, small. And so, since pars minuta prima is so difficult to say, it gets shortened to minuta, which in translated into English becomes the minute. One minute is one-sixtieth of a degree. Now, what if even a minute of arc is too small? A minute of arc is a pretty good number. For example, in astronomically speaking, degrees are pretty good for most course measurements. The sun and moon, for example, are roughly a half a degree across on the sky. They appear as bright disks a half a degree across. The human eye without a telescope can roughly see the difference between two things separated by anywhere from two to five minutes of arc. That's about how close I can get two stars and how well I can measure with naked eye techniques. This is also about the limit of what you need for most surveying practice. This boils down to a little under a a mile per, per minute of arc. But even a mile is not close enough. You need another unit which gets you even closer. And so what you do is you then take the minutes and you further subdivide the minute. And you divide them into 60 parts. Again, this 60 comes from the Babylonians. They like to express fractions and units of base 60. Ptolemy referred to this as the parte minutiae secundae, the second little part. Well, since the word minute was already taken, the phrase is shortened to secunde, which then gets anglicized into seconds, because it was the second division of the angle. This is the first division of the angle, the second division of the degree. Each minute is divided up into one sixtieth, into 60 seconds, as each degree is 60 minutes. So you can do all the math, and you find that 1 second of arc is 1 60th of a minute, or 60 times 60 is 1 3,600th of a degree. A second is a really, really tiny, fine subdivision. In fact, the second of arc is going to be important to us in astronomy, much more so in in 162, perhaps, than 161, whereas the minute is the typical angle, angle of size that you can see with the human eyes, the human eyes resolution. One second of arc is about the smallest angle you can resolve without special techniques using a telescope. And so we'll often talk about being able to separate two stars by, separate only by 1 3600th of a a degree, one arc second on the sky. So telescope-level units, naked eye-level units, and then, of course, the degree is the big coarse unit that we use for measuring out angles. In measuring angles on the surface of the Earth, these come down to... Human size scale. So seconds of arc, you can walk out very quickly. Minutes of arc, you have to go about a mile or a few kilometers or so before you reach a minute of arc. So seconds become very, very local. Minutes when you get sort of to city size, degrees when you start getting into state, county, and state, and nation size when you translate these into arcs of geography. All right. Now, the subdivision of the degree, why 60. Well, of course, it's those darn Babylonians again. They hated fractions and 60 was another one of these wickedly cool numbers. It can be evenly divisible by 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 10, 12, 15, 20, and 30 parts without any resort to fractions. Cool. This is really nice. It's nice to be able to divide things by 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. Those are the major divisions of, okay, I want to parcel up something by a factor of 5. Now I want to divide it up by 3. There aren't many numbers that are evenly divisible by 3 and 5, two nasty little prime numbers. 2 is trivial, 6 is kind of a trick, 2 and 3, so this is is a cool number. The Babylonians used a base 60 number system, and in fact it's referred to sometimes as a sexagesimal, sexa being 6, decimal being 10, so 6 tens are, are 60. So this is really cool, you get these base 60 units. We've kept these units, even though we live in a digital decimal world that can think of in tenths and twentieths and things like that, because for years, before there was good calculation and before most people were literate, you could actually work with this. It's like the question last week about why there was 12 inches in a foot. 12 is evenly divisible by 2, 3, and 4. You don't have to resort to fractions to break up something two ways, three ways, and four ways. So buried in these numbers is sort of there's a little bit of pre-literate mathematics buried in here, and it sticks in our language and in our notation system. Now, if the Babylonians did form fractions, they always formed fractions as groups of sixty. For example, they might form an angle seven and fourteen sixtieths of a degree. Well, nowadays, and using Ptolemy's notation, we would write that as seven degrees, fourteen minutes, zero zero seconds. So we would actually break off the fraction and express it now as 7 degrees, 14 minutes, 0, 0 seconds. The little circle is used for the degree. A single tick mark is used for a minute. A double tick mark is used for the second. In fact, if the number here was 7 degrees, 14 minutes, 22 seconds, the Babylonians would use a compound fraction. Babylonian mathematics is really pretty complicated to the modern eye. So this is a nice, compact, and simple notation. Let's now that we've got a system of angular units, we're going to use angles a lot because everything we deal with is either, either is a sphere to the first approximation or looks like a sphere. The appearance of the sky as being a hemispherical bowl inverted over our heads, just out of reach, means that we're really going to want to play this game of measuring things with angular units on the sky. So now we can take the process to the geographical application and subdivide the Earth. The Earth, as we saw last time, is a sphere. A sphere is a figure with a mathematical point in the center, an equal distance to all, in all directions from that point. Now the Earth, of course, is not a perfectly smooth billiard ball sphere, it's got terrain relief, so this is the first starting approximation of the sphere, and then you worry about the local bumps and wiggles, you know, continents, islands, mountains, stuff like that. We can sort of impose this grid on kind of a notional sphere that covers the entire Earth. Since the Earth is a surface of a sphere, if I want to say, where is here? I can do that by imposing a series of arcs on the surface of a sphere because lines drawn on the surface of a sphere ultimately close on circles. The close themselves are all circles. Circles are easy. So if I use a circle on a flat plane to measure out angles, I can abstract into two dimensions the surface of a sphere. Now, to do that, we need to make some primary divisions of the Earth, and these are actually fixed by observed physical geography. The first of these is to slice the Earth in half into northern and southern halves, equal size halves, and so this is referred to as the equator. This is basically the plane that divides the Earth into equal north and south halves, and where a plane intersects a sphere Forms what's called a great circle, the largest circle you can draw on the surface of a sphere. It's a circle whose center is also the center of the sphere. Perpendicular to that, I can draw the poles north and south. And then I can draw a second great circle, which now passes through the poles. And I've drawn one here in orange, going from north in an arc to south. And you'll have to imagine the other half of that circle closing up behind the Earth here. So I'm now using the Earth as an as a opaque solid in drawing this picture. And I now have two separate coordinates that join at a right angle down on the equator. This defines the two pieces of the coordinate system I need on the sphere. An equator which defines an east-west circle dividing the Earth north-south. And then a meridian line which slices the Earth from pole to pole into equal east-west halves. Of course, where I choose to make that cut is somewhat arbitrary, whereas the equator can only be made in one particular place. It's gotta be perpendicular to the north and south poles. How do we define those poles? Well, tomorrow we define the poles by watching the motions of stars in the heavens because of the rotation of the Earth and finding the places that don't move. And there's only two, one in the north and one in the exact south along the rotation axis of the Earth. Of course, you can take a purely geocentric view and say the heavens themselves are turning. All I've done is change my perspective. So there really is no problem of using the modern view but talking about it in its ancient terms. Now, this allows us to then put a grid of arcs on the surface of a sphere using latitude and longitude. Here's a nice picture. Again, this is Google Earth. It's really made this wonderful for me. I love Google Earth. That's a cool program. Here we show the north poles, this little blue line. The red equator is shown here and I've changed my perspective to a northern latitude. I need to define a particular meridian that I'm going to define as my zero point of meridian. I could pick obviously any of these vertical arcs, are local meridians, but I want to pick one that's special. Since it's the primary or first meridian, I call this the prime meridian. And by convention, since about the 1880s, that prime meridian has gone through Greenwich in England, just outside of London. The reason for this is that the system of latitude and longitude used on the world was imposed upon the Earth by different people. Claudius Ptolemy in the 2nd century AD located the zero point, his prime meridian, out on the Fortunate Isles off to the east coast of, probably the Canaries off the, or the Azores, off the east coast of Africa. The French... Not surprisingly, had the Prime Meridian going through Paris. The Germans might have put the Prime Meridian through Berlin, the Romans put their Prime Meridian through Rome, and the British put their Prime Meridian through the headquarters of the Naval Observatory in Greenwich, England. Since the British were the primary seagoing power of the 19th century, and their navigation maps and charts and timekeeping systems for finding longitude were so much better than everyone else's, that people adopted the British grid system as the world default. And In 1880, we all got together in a treaty, including the U.S., and agreed on the Greenwich Meridian becoming the Prime Meridian. Now, the way we measure where you are in a position is to define two arcs with respect to the equator and the Prime Meridian. The first of these angles of arc is measured called the longitude. This is the angle that I have to swing my meridian east or west of the prime meridian to reach the, along the equator to reach the meridian of the location that I'm interested in. Because after all, I can slice the earth through the poles in any number of ways. I pick the slice through Greenwich to be zero. And I say, okay, how much, do I ha- how much angle do I have to turn my next slice to pass through, say, Columbus, Ohio, or New York, or Shanghai. And that's the angle I sweep east or west from the prime meridian along the equator. So there's my first move east-west to get to my location. I call that the longitude. It's measured east-west along the equator from the prime meridian. I then need to move either north or south to reach my location. And I move the angle along a meridian line. I call that angle, north or south, measured along a meridian from the equator, the latitude of the position. So in order to get from, to a location here, which not surprisingly is Columbus, Ohio, as I've chosen here on the red dot, I have to move east a certain amount along the equator, and then north along the meridian that passes through Columbus. So that east and west position, east-west and then north-south position, gives me a unique location on the Earth. In this case, I am west of the prime meridian and north of the equator in Columbus, Ohio. So we define a system of longitude and latitude which has two reference points on the sphere. The prime meridian setting the zero point of longitude and the equator setting the zero point of latitude north and south. So let's see this as a concrete example. Here's that same picture, the equator, and the prime meridian. I want to get to Columbus, Ohio. I can look up that Columbus, Ohio is about 80 west, 40 north. Actually, it's about 83 degrees west. I don't know why I wrote 80 there, that's wrong. So I have to go 83 degrees west longitude to this meridian here, which along the equator is just off the coast of Ecuador. And then I travel north 40 degrees to land in Columbus, Ohio. Obviously, if I want to be more precise like navigating an airplane, I might talk about how many minutes or seconds of longitude and latitude to get to Columbus. But the surprising thing is, this latitude is not too far off from what's actually there. This position of latitude, of course, also defines a circle. There are lots of places that are 40 degrees north latitude, so latitude alone is not sufficient to to give you position, and in fact, I call this line of constant latitude a parallel. Why? because I'm taking and slicing the Earth parallel to the equator. But because the parallel plane I'm slicing by is moving away north or south of the equator, the circles get smaller and smaller and smaller until they converge on a single point on the north and south poles. So everywhere along the 40th parallel of latitude is 40 degrees north. Similarly, everything along the 83rd degree of west longitude is a whole series of locations through South America and North America to the Arctic, north-south. So I need both positions to form a pair of angular crosshairs. Poof! You are here. Or here is somewhere else. Now this is using a coarse system of degrees. I can measure degrees with my finger pretty good. A finger is approximately a degree across or about a half a degree across an angle, just to give yourself a human scale of that. So if you hold your hand at arm's length, hold up your finger, the width of your fingers, in round numbers, between a half a degree and a degree, depending on how big your hands are. But we want to get more precise, I have to now subdivide those degrees. Where are we now? We are here in Stillman Laboratory. We are at 40 degrees, zero, 00 minutes, six arc seconds north of the 40, basically six arc seconds north of the 40th parallel of latitude. And we are at longitude, 83 degrees, zero minutes, 40 arc seconds west. Pretty good. We're very close to the 40th parallel. In fact, how many of you know where the latitude stone is on campus? All right, a couple do. Expedition. Get yourself out to the main library and find the latitude stone. Where should it be? Well, I've drawn this picture so north is up, east is that way, east is off to your right, west is to the left, north is up, south is down. So where should, up here, 40 degrees, exactly north latitude be? Round numbers. Should it be above or below the the blue line? Somebody. Below. And where should the 83 degrees, where would be west of that position? To the left or to the right? Left. In fact, if I slide down here, there's the 40th parallel. Six arc seconds is not very far. It's a couple blocks. And there is this spot right here. There's the main library. There's the oval here and there's, oh God, University Hall, one of those. Right there, at that location, if you go down to the, just north of the main library, on the west end of the oval, you will find here, the latitude stone. Geography classes from time immemorial have surveyed this location. The elevation above sea level at this point is 759.718 feet, or 716 feet, Whew, that's precise. The position is 40 degrees, zero zero, eighty-three 83 degrees, zero, 54. A few arc seconds to the west, a few arc seconds to the south of our current position. But a even number of latitudes runs through the campus. We're pretty close. In fact, walk down to the Wexner Center, this long stripe in the pavement, that's not an accidental artistic feature. That actually is the 40th parallel of latitude. I went out with a GPS receiver a couple winters and found that. I thought, wow, this is really cool. Let's walk this way and see where the 40th parallel of latitude cuts across campus. This is before Google Earth exists. So I got my little GPS receiver and went trot. Now it's 15 degrees that day. This is December when I taught this in winter, and sure enough, the 40th parallel of latitude runs roughly along 15th Avenue. Not quite. 15th Avenue is a little bit tilted with respect to perfect east-west. But if you wanted to have a good reference on campus for I want to face as close to due east, go to the Wexner Center, go to the pavement facing 15th, face 15th line yourself up with that pavement point, you're facing within a fraction of a degree of exactly due east. That's not surprising. The Columbus street grid was originally laid out on roughly north-south directions. The campus street grid is angled. And all those funky angles in the Wexner Center, that's basically the architect playing games with those two grid systems. So along this line, I thought, well, you know, I'm moving east. The latitude stone was 54 arc seconds west of the 83rd meridian of longitude. Hey, where is 8300? So I grabbed my GPS and I headed up 15th Avenue and did a little walkabout. Now, 15th Avenue is not quite right. It actually angles slightly to the south. So I went to go find 40 degrees, zero zero north, 83 degrees, zero zero west longitude. And it's this place. <laughs> Oh, that's a nasty place. In fact, I'm kind of happy it was 15 degrees. You wouldn't want to be anywhere near this place in, in, uh, in summertime. Phew. So this may be a special place for a rat, but it's not a very good place for, for normal human beings. It is, in fact, a dumpster behind about a half block southeast of Summit, and behind, just behind a, an apartment complex, and obviously they had a, a couple beer cases in there, so they obviously were having some fun. There's nothing really special about any particular zero-zero location. It's kind of cool to find it. But you can see that by moving very, within a minute of arc in round numbers barely got me to within a few, a few blocks away from campus. So in order to talk about positions within a city, I need to have minutes and seconds of angle to get higher and higher precision. The system of measuring angles on the surface of the earth is fairly old. It was developed Primarily at the end of the 2nd century A.D. by Claudius Ptolemy, the father of modern geography, and also an astronomer of great influence later on, as we'll see in the story we tell before. But unfortunately, Ptolemy's knowledge came very close to the end of the Roman Empire. And when the Roman Empire collapsed, the amount of social upheaval that occurred was immense. So big that through most of the Mediterranean world, most of this knowledge was actually lost. For example, flat earth maps made a reappearance, even though Geography had brought, been brought to a height of technology of angular measurements on the surface of a sphere to the point that we can actually reconstruct ancient maps with a precision which is almost, almost rivals that of G- G- GPS positioning systems. Maps suddenly became flat again and were cent- centered on particular cities saying, yeah, you want to get from Paris to London, go that way, thus and so many whatever miles. In fact, you started seeing things like TO maps, which began to be centered not on Rome but on Jerusalem. Europe was largely Christian at the time and recentered its world on Jerusalem. But we see in those maps of the of the world from the, from the period of the Middle Ages echoes of that Babylonian map. In thirteen hundred, Ptolemy was rediscovered, along with this idea of the spherical earth, really got hammered down with the work of, of Aristotle, and the prime meridian was set up to be Greenwich instead of the four. Fortunate Isles, and people very quickly saw the superiority of the angular system of coordinates and maps in 1300 suddenly got a lot more sophisticated. So much so that they began to be useful for long-distance navigation in the following centuries. The so-called Portolan maps and things like that were now being created within a century of rediscovery along modern grounds and brought forward from Ptolemy into the modern maps that we see today. Here's an example of one of these Psalter maps. This is from the year 1250 A.D., just before the rediscovery of Ptolemy and Aristotle in Europe. It's got a couple of nifty features. First of all, the center really is there at Jerusalem. It says Hierusalem, which is the Latinate version of that. This map looks funny to the modern eye because there's the Mediterranean going down. West is down, east is up, north is to the left, south is to the right. And this is the known world of the year 1250 A.D. Now this convention is, notice again, this sort of called a T.O. map because there are the principal rivers of the world in, well, very fanciful form. The Nile is there. The Black Sea and some European rivers are there. And then the Mediterranean runs down. There's your T. And the whole thing is surrounded by, we've seen this in Homeric times, a world ocean. So these are called T.O. maps. The other piece of this is this map is aligned with east is up. Why are they doing that? In Latin, the word east is orientalis, or oriental. And therefore, this map has been oriented. It's been aligned, so east is up. So hiding in our word to orient something means to find east. We speak of the east as the orient. So buried in our language is this odd bit of geographical history. Within 50 years, this is the map of the world. This is in fact Ptolemy's map coming from a a, a beautiful engraving of Ptolemy's works from the city of Ulm in about 1328, so this is only about 75 years later. We see the familiar grid of latitude and longitude laid out and the zero point is out here on the fortunate isles and buried inside of this is a more or less modern looking map and from there maps completely, the TO maps just vanish from the historical record within a few decades of the rediscovery of Ptolemy. So good is this system. Yes, sir? Nobody. That, that's a legend. That's, that may be a good song by uh, by Irving Berlin and company. I think it was Irving Berlin. They all laughed when Christopher Columbus said the world was round. That isn't Irving Berlin. My wife will really get me for that one. Um, no one believed the earth was flat. If they laughed at Columbus is they were very skeptical of his small size for the earth because the rediscovery of the old works, many scholars thought the earth was in fact much larger. But the flat earth is just a bit of, bit of legend that sounds good in poetry. No one b- took the flat earth seriously after about 300 AD, maybe a bit before 1300, but it was an aberration or a convenience because they didn't have the means to do the arcs on the surface of a sphere. Good question. Where did that come from? A lot of legends are sort of stuck. Part of what we learn in this class is what we unlearn. Let's now talk about the celestial sphere. I can take the sphere of the Earth and I can play the same game on the sky. If I look at the sky, the Earth looks like a sphere, a hemispherical bowl over my head. If I now get away from the I'm standing on a location view, the sky really appears to be a sphere centered upon the Earth, and we call that sphere the celestial sphere. Just like the sphere of the Earth can be subdivided with poles and equator, so too I can subdivide the celestial sphere. And I use the Earth to tell me where to make those divisions. The first thing I can do is I can take the plane that cuts the Earth into equal halves at the equator and simply project it outwards until it cuts the the surface of this imaginary celestial sphere. And I get a celestial equator. It's simply the projection of the Earth's equator upon the celestial sphere. Similarly, I can take the Earth's poles and I can extend them outwards until they intersect on the heavens and the celestial sphere, and I talk about the North Celestial Pole and the South Celestial Pole. So I've taken the the major reference points of the Earth's sphere, its axis of rotation and the equator, and I've simply superimposed them and projected them upon the celestial sphere on which the stars appear to be pasted. So I get a celestial equator and celestial poles. Now this suggests that if I can do this setup here of the celestial sphere, that if I wanted to know the location of a star on a particular location of the sky, I can play the same latitude and longitude game on the sky that I do on the Earth. So for example, I can draw a celestial meridian passing through the north and south celestial poles, but now passing through a particular star, say the dog star Sirius here drawn in purple, just like I drew a meridian north-south through Columbus. I can then say, well, how far north along this meridian do I have to go from the celestial equator to reach the star? And that angle, this sort of celestial latitude, has a special name. It's called the declination. This word declination entered the language, curiously, through the art of a man by the name of Geoffrey Chaucer, who, even though he's known for the Canterbury Tales, also wrote the first European treatise on the use of the astrolabe. And his name for this altitude or latitude of a star on the celestial sphere was called a declination. He may not have invented it, but it was through him that it actually entered our language. It's the angle along the celestial meridian from the celestial equator. And it's measured in degrees, just like a latitude. It's analogous, in fact, to latitude. So I get one of the angles, the so-called declination. The celestial longitude, however, is much more complicated. And the reason it's complicated is because the whole system is set into motion. So, this is how we would look at the sky, imagining the sky as a crystalline sphere with the Earth at the center, and I'm looking down upon it from above. Unfortunately, that's not our perspective. And here's where it gets complicated. Our perspective is standing on the Earth, looking up at the sky. And at any given instant, I only see one half of the sky. Now, I can wait for the Earth to rotate and bring a little bit more sky over my eastern horizon, but another part of the sky sets below that western horizon at the same time. So one, high, one part of the sky stretches above my horizon. The word horizon is, in fact, an Arabic word. It comes to us through the Arabic tradition of astronomy. And the other half is below my horizon. Now, the other place, so I, that sets a great circle across the sky, dividing my local sky in half. The other thing I can do is I need a set of poles. Well, the obvious pole is straight up. That's called the zenith. It's the point directly overhead. I need an opposite position, nadir, which is the point directly below my feet, perpendicular to the circle of my flat horizon around me. Again, a pair of Arabic words because of the tradition by which we learned astronomy in the Middle Ages. We also need a couple of reference points, and I picked the compass points. North, south, I'm sorry. Yes, I'm right. North, south, east, and west. So now I've oriented myself, I've found east. I know up, and I know the limits of the sky. This defines how the sky appears to me locally. If I drew it as a cartoon, I feel like I'm standing in the middle of a sphere with a hemispherical bowl above me, north, south, east, and west in their proper proportions for this room. Straight overhead is the zenith. This defines the local sky. Now it gets fun because this local sky is in motion because the Earth is rotating. What half of the celestial sphere I see at any instant depends upon two things. Where I'm standing on the Earth, latitude and longitude and what time it happens to be, both the date and the time of the day. The reason for this is the Earth is rotating and so the effect of depending upon place and depending upon time is that objects appear to rise in the eastern horizon and set below my western horizon as the Earth rotates. Now, this is a lot of words, so let's make this a picture. This is what it looks like for the local sky in Columbus. Here's the Earth. Here's the 40th parallel of latitude for Columbus. I'm at this location straight up is this angle here. The horizon is perpendicular, parallel to the ground. There's my north celestial sphere, south celestial equator, and this green line is the projection outward. I don't see any stars down here because they're below my horizon. This green hemisphere is the half of the sky that I see. Now look at these angles in here. We've seen these angles before. That's my latitude. Well, this means that I can now take my sky and look at it locally by projecting the celestial equator down, celestial north pole, projecting the celestial equator on the sky. This is how my sky looks. The celestial sphere in Grand and my local sphere depends upon these angles. That angle is my latitude. I'm one step of the way towards celestial navigation because I can now reference the latitude and longitude system on the Earth to the latitude and longitude system on the sky. And tomorrow we're going to take this static picture and set it into motion. See you all tomorrow. That was close.